Hello and welcome to the 49th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode recorded on the 30th of December 2020 is our first retrospective episode for the year just gone. Myself, Ben Byford, I'm joined with Ben Gilbert, the two Bens, to have a ramble chat spanning all sorts of different trends and things that have happened in AI and AI ethics this year. Some of the things we chat about is the Timnit Gibru leaving Google, the promise of AI and COVID-19, the Kaggle COVID competition, GTP3, the COVID Microsoft Excel blunder, test and trace apps and privacy concerns, the AI ethics book club, different philosophy AI and ethics courses, AI explainability, and trends going forwards into 2021. A massive thank you to all the people who've listened to episodes this year. Thank you for your interest and your support. If you'd like to find more episodes, then visit machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, on Instagram at machine ethics podcast, and you can find extra content and support us with your hard-earned cash on patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks again and hope you enjoy. So, um, hi Ben, uh, it's nice to speak to you again and have you back on the podcast. Hello Ben. Hi. Um, would you... Just in case anyone yourself? was confused about that, we're both called Ben. That wasn't Ben Byford saying hello Ben to me and me saying hello to myself. Uh, that would be unusual. Uh, hi, yeah, I'm <laughs> Ben Gilbert. So you might have heard me on one of the podcasts recorded... Ooh, I don't know how long ago now. I, it was back in the time when the world was more normal and we used to meet people in person and we recorded one with Rohin Shah, I think around about sort of February time this year. Um, so I work for a company called Soprasteria in the newly established digital ethics practice, um, study philosophy at university as well. So sort of bringing together those two sides of technology, philosophy, ethics. That's roughly me. Yeah, great. And obviously I'm the other Ben, the original Ben, let's say. So, <laughs> trying to get back at me for that stuff yeah exactly um go check out uh ben's interview it's it's really good but obviously he has a little dig at being the the other ben yeah so i do this podcast um and i invited ben to come chat to me because he is a interesting person who does this sort of stuff and talks about these things at conferences and does it as a, as a job so it was great that he was available to chat about this weird bizarre year that we've had um so we've both kind of been sat inside <laughs> taking it all in um, like lots of you um, we just wanted to kind of do a roundup of what's happened in AI um, you know the things that we've we've seen in the AI world and ethics world we have a few things one of the things that was like high in the, the media I guess recently was um, the departure of uh, Gbrew from Google and um, that was kind of like writ large in my Twitter sphere, the Twitter bubble that I live in. Yeah. Um, lots of people talking about that um, and articles and, and things like that. Um, and I feel like that was maybe a institutional problem that needs to be resolved and not and and kind of is impacting on the ethics side, but not necessarily to do with the ethics itself. It's more kind of like how Google is running. That's kind of the vibe I got from it. Is that the kind yeah. of thing that you got yeah it's it's one of these stories which i think the more i've heard about it the the worse i feel google has done to i think ethics in mm. technology ethics in ai in general were um 
yeah, we, I, I, I suspect we have fairly similar Twitter spheres, but we, we sort of heard uh, on Twitter that Timmy had been fired from Google. And we, you know, uh, from what we could tell on the, the initial messages is we didn't really know why. And she didn't know either. It was just like this fairly sort of quick thing without getting a, like a great explanation. My access has been cut off. Uh, we, we sort of kind of gradually find out more and it, it appears as though that there was a, you know, there's a paper being written. I've got to say, I've not read the paper itself uh, yet. Um, but a paper which is, as I understand, talking about yeah, ethics in AI, I think it was talking to some extent about things like the environmental impact of yeah, training very large models. And the, the, the it had gone through what was generally the normal process you would expect at Google. You know, you're submitting a, a paper to a journal or a conference. Um, you, you kind of send uh, messages to people to let them know what you're doing. There may be some sort of corporate policy which says that we are we're able to moderate these, but in practice, in reality, generally there is a, either a fairly cursory, you know, cursory glance that goes over them, or there is a detailed glance, but rarely, if ever, do they censor these papers. In this particular instance, without any real explanation, it's censored to the point of, you know, we, we can't have our name on this, you can't publish this paper, it needs to be withdrawn. Um, so it's it's just a very sort of unfair, uneven response, and Timmy responding to that to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy with this reaction that's happening. And then it's just immediately all your access is cut off. You know, we, we accept your resignation. Uh, though mm-hmm. as far as she's aware, she, she had not asked, uh, you know, had not submitted her own resignation. And then the, kind of Google's continued response afterwards is just kind of throwing fuel on the fire. This this uh, email from the CEO, not not saying sorry for what they've done, rather talking about things like, we need to find better de-escalation strategies. You know, it's... yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's interesting because it comes in the year where they actually publicized the fact that they can help your company with the AI ethics hmm. consulta- consultation, right? It's, it's sort of like ironic um, that this has happened, you know, not long after they've gone, well, you know, we, we are experts in this, so you can come and, and we can sort you out and help. Um, and then to basically fire a you know a prominent um researcher for basically mm. researching seems yeah. you know bizarre to me yeah um so regardless of like what we actually know about the internal workings of google and what may or may not have happened it's bizarre that you would that this would happen anyway in mm. in such a way and like you i'm really interested in the specifics of that paper and the specifics about why they didn't want it to be publicized or whatever um, because obviously that's the kind of the meat and potatoes of this you know what, why is it google wanted to bury this research paper is it going to be detrimental to you know the fact that they can charge for particularly large models you know uh, language models and such so yeah i think there's a lot in there but i think we haven't yet seen what the actual issue is necessarily other than the institution um behaving really yeah. badly yeah it's it's almost they've there is someone who they have hired to be an outspoken uh supporter of ethical ai that they then mm. fired for being outspoken um yeah and oh there, there's even something more i think came out a few days back i don't know if this preceded it or not but uh mm. google google's policy saying that they want their researchers to kind of display google in a positive light mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, I mean, we all we, we all want that, but I mean, yeah. that's 
I think the it's, ethics and yeah. positivity don't necessarily mesh. Yeah, and it's tone deaf given the narrative around this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, definitely. I don't know, it's always a tough one. I, I don't know if you have it at your work as well, but there are certainly moments in my work where I sort of like push on the limits of, um, you know, there, there might be a particular client which you could work with and you're thinking, do I be overtly outspoken because I disagree with the industry that they're operating in. You know, it could be, um, you know, like say like the tobacco industry or something like that. I'm using that purely as an illustrative example. It's not, yeah. it's not uh, a real example for me, but, um, because you love the tobacco industry. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a real example in that sense. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying from the, from such clients, but, um, where I sort of ask myself, like, on the one hand, do you take a very hardline approach and say, uh, I'm I'm absolutely going to speak out and say that we won't work with a company like this? Or do you rather say, mm. um, I need to take a slightly more measured approach to be able to influence the change that I want to make in that business? You know, if, if I do agree to work with them and I march in day one and say the product you're selling is evil, mm. day one will be my last day there. Rather, if you sort of like sympathize slightly with the fact that they are a business and try to sort of, sort of like push on the limits of how much can we change it? Will I have a greater net positive impact by working for an yep. industry which I dislike, but not immediately alienating myself with them? It's mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah, definitely. And I think you can imagine that working for a large tech corporation like that, you are presuming that, you know, in hiring you at yeah. all, then they're you know, they're signaling to you that they they can in, incorporate change into, mm. you know. So, yeah, I, I think there's a definite line there. I'm not sure I could probably deal with the tobacco in reality. Yeah. But, um, yeah, or like, you know, I'm just working for an arms manufacturer at the moment, Ben, um, and that's fine. Um, I think there are yeah. definite lines there, but I think, yeah, like most of the time there is a decision to be made. And I think for us presumably we want to be the change that we want to see in the world and and help that um happen so yeah and doing that sometimes the way to be the change is by refusing to work with them sometimes right. you're the change by working with them but you gotta gotta make a judgment call yeah. on great so that happened lots of google stuff and we had um black lives matter which kind of tangentially bridges this thing because um there's a lot of conversation about uh, diversity in this wrapped up in this Google story as well. Mm. Um, and we had all this happening. We had COVID happening and we had all these kind of like social economic uh, events in the world. Um, and you were saying to me before that we were all hoping that AI was going to come and save us, yeah. right? <laughs> From some of these things and um, more specifically like COVID because we could, you know, apply some machine learning algorithms and it would sort us out and it would be fine, right? Yeah. What happened there? I'm still waiting. <laughs> there was a, like... maybe, maybe it will happen. Maybe maybe after the fact, you know? Yeah. Like, great. <laughs> or maybe AI is to blame. AI is putting us in this awful simulation. Um, but there, there was one thing sort of before it, like there was the full breakout. I forget the name of the company, but a company somewhere, I believe in Canada, used an mm. algorithm to predict the outbreak and it did so uh, before any other means. So that that was like the, the one thing AI did, but beyond that, it hasn't really given us a you know a brilliant solution to any of this. It's, it's kind of like 
technology has been massively impactful in helping around this. But it's the more the more basic things that we've had for a long time. Without the internet, we wouldn't be recording this podcast now. Uh, we would not mm. have been able to continue work in any 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 measure vaguely close to normal. Um, we we have vaccines now being administered more on the horizon, but those weren't um, AI generated vaccines. They were done in a more traditional sense. No doubt, technology mm. broadly has accelerated that for us to be able to do it as quickly as we have, but. Mm-hmm. AI has not been a magic bullet to this. Yeah. Did you did you see the like I definitely concur, but um did you see the big Kaggle data set that they put up of uh papers relating to COVID nineteen? Um so early on um in kind of April May time, there was a competition on Kaggle, uh Kaggle.com, which is also a Google company now. Um, which was to encourage uh data scientists to use their skills, the ninja machine learning skills to apply that to a big corpus of text, right? Which related to COVID research so Mm. far. And that that research was being updated. And there was like a lot of stuff. There's just tons and tons of papers um, around COVID, around different types of COVID as well as COVID-19. And when I saw that, I was kind of like, I wish I had time and the, like the chops to kind of dip into this and, and do some modeling. Mm. Um, I had a, a brief look at it and um, had some thoughts about some NLP stuff, but I didn't get around to doing that. And I just wonder if there was any anything at all useful out of that process and um, what happened there, because it felt like it maybe wasn't a perfect situation because there wasn't patient data in there. There wasn't like a big database of we've done all these different things and the, all the outcomes, it was text of all different kinds you know talking around the subject so not a perfect uh, machine learning thing um it, it was you know natural language processing uh, task if you will mm. but yeah i thought it was interesting and it is it's sort of a shame because i I'm, i i put it on this pedestal and i was like someone's going to look at this and make sense out of it and, and i really wish if you did do that to to let me know to message and and we'll feature it on the podcast next next time but um, yeah. do check out the data set on Kaggle there it's still up there um yeah. so if you want to apply some of your skills to this kind of natural language processing task then uh, go check it out there was uh there's been a few like NLP type things generated over this time i i think GPT3 was this year so difficult for mm-hmm. me to like define years now but um GPT3 being uh, from OpenAI, it's a very large uh, generative language model. Um, there was a kind of a year or two back they had GPT-2, which got a lot of media attention for being on the stage to release. GPT-3 is a uh, significantly larger model than that. Seems to have progressed very well in things like question-answer performance, but there was uh, an example of someone using it for these sort of like chat rooms. Um, I forget the exact reference, but I think if you look up on Google something like GPT-3 chat room, um, you'd be able to find it and you can kind of tie it to those COVID things as it's it's a way for people to get more social contact. Um, and there was an extent of like fine tuning on these as well. So you could decide what type of persona you wanted to be chatting with at what time. I think it would be fairly reasonable as well if someone wanted to uh, add, again, a sort of fine tuning layer on the top as well, where they were. They were wanting it to give you a bit of COVID information as well. So ask what's the sort of like best practice on safety or on cleansing 
um, social distancing, anything like that, I would imagine is fairly viable to train into the model and get quite reasonable responses from. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess my response to that is, why don't they just have the information? You know, if you, if you yeah. go in, interested in COVID specifically, you could just have the information. Whereas what you're saying is it's more like they're having a conversation, which was more about this kind of social interaction mm -hmm. bit rather than anything else, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for me, the GTP3 thing was like a boom and a bust. It was kind of like, this is amazing, but is it really, you know? Yeah. You know, it's kind of okay, but it's um, it doesn't do a lot of things, which I think we're, tr we're starting to see AI is not the silver bullet for all these different tasks. Um, mm. So although it's really cool, um, it's only kind of parroting what it's seen, essentially. It's just doing it in a really sophisticated way. Um, so if it if it hasn't seen, you know, certain things which are more recent, then it's going to make some stuff up which is not going to make sense. Um, but you have things like um, AI Dungeon. Have you seen AI Dungeon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which, which is fun, yeah. right? It's just a really interesting concept for, like, mm. using it in a creative way. So. Yeah, check out AI Dungeon. Um, yeah, and you can chat to GTP3 in a kind of Dungeons and Dragons type situation. You can mm. just kind of almost play a game with it and it will automatically create uh, a story for you. Um, so there was a, a relevant thing that happened in the UK for some of the teaching that I do is um, someone used Excel and lost loads of data on COVID yeah. tests. Um, which I bring up just because it's kind of like more data sciencey stuff rather than or like tech stuff rather than ethics stuff. But it's it's just using the right tools for the right problem, right? Um, mm. And they found they had all these test results come back and they they put it in an Excel sheet and they just the Excel restrict you to a certain amount of um, rows. Um, so just a lot of the data was just kind of like not shown, not imported, and and therefore and they didn't see, so they were just lost basically. Um, so that was a, a kind of a ridiculous thing that happened, I think maybe August time, something like that. So watch out, <laughs> use the correct tools, um, yeah. which is not Excel for large amounts of data, okay? Use databases or Apache Spark or something, you know, something that can handle large uh, data. Yeah, I feel like that was a Ooh. sort of theme we had uh, earlier on in the pandemic was again, not not really relating to AI specifically, but data in general and COVID with, um, we had this, uh, perhaps I say, uh, we, it's more in my like Twitter sphere, but, um, this sort of narrative, uh, around the contact tracing apps and the data usage on them. And it yep. seemed to split into two different parties. There was the P E P P P T I believe it was. Uh, and the D3PT groups um, kind of claiming, or yeah, how should we build a test and trace app? Uh, the, the argument on one side of the fence, uh, which was like the early UK perspective was uh, we should build a centralized model uh, for our COVID test and trace app uh, because the data that we get will be better for epidemiological research. Um, mm. But on the other hand, people saying this is very personal data. We don't know what this data might be used for in the past, so we should build a decentralized model. Um, effectively, like, that is the model we're using now. Um, your, I, I don't know the exact architecture, but it's something to the effect of there are some centralized servers 
but all those centralized servers are really doing is sending out pings if another phone has been uh, within a certain distance of yours for a certain period of time and it regards it as a high risk. It's not storing who has been pinged, it's not storing who has returned positive test results, um, mm -hmm. whereas the, the the initial NHS concept would. Um, and I would expect our government didn't go for the centralised model because there was too much of a media outcry over it, saying this is a surveillance state type issue. Mm -hmm. um, you, I, I, do, I do understand that plight entirely. Like it, it's sensitive data. It could be our location data and people that we've had any social contact with. It's very sensitive. It's very... Um, uh, particularly a few years from now, you could imagine how that could be used against you. But would it have been better data for modelling the spread of the pandemic and giving us better control over it? And would that have been an adequate trade-off? And by going for the decentralised model, did we effectively just give away control in an entirely different way? We um, we sort of thought decentralised, it means no one's in control, but that wasn't really the truth. Um, there was a slide from, I think, Google. I feel like they're getting really hammered in this podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, said something to the effect of like... Uh, yeah, just a really throwaway line of, and we will decide when we can turn off the access to the API. It's that sort of like Bluetooth API, which is allowing mobile devices to ping each other. Completely essential to the application functioning at all. And it's not our government that can decide uh, when does the pandemic end and when do we stop using the app. Google or Apple can say to us, no, we think we think we've got this under wraps now, so we're revoking access. Your your national test and trace app no longer works. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much wrapped up in that, and it's difficult to kind of um, make sense of what would be the best situation, um, because I'm sure whichever way you use the technology to accomplish this issue, that w there would be something that you, you have to compromise on, right? Mm. Um, part of me wants to think that everyone was trying their best, right? And that Google was maybe saying kind of slightly odd things, but wasn't, you know, going to be malicious. But then again, you know, we are collecting all this data and this data can be kept and used for other purposes in the future or now. Um, and I guess my rebuttal to that stuff is don't, we already have that information on people, but it's just in those corporations already. So it's almost like we didn't, ever actually need the tra test and trace app at all we just needed google and um facebook and apple just to kind of co collaborate on something and then mm. the data would be already available so it's kind of it's a weird world we're living in where we're already doing this stuff um but the governments don't necessarily have control over it in a meaningful way which is going to actually help yeah. us uh, for these sorts of situations um, yeah, yeah. Sort of like sentiment-wise, it raises a few questions really around. Um, I mean, in the West, in the West, I think we tend to be moderately trusting of government, but in the UK, I would certainly say we are quite pro NHS. I would say we're more mm. pro NHS than we are pro big corporate. Yet, uh, like you say, it's, it's not as if this data didn't exist. It, it didn't exist in this exact form. What existed mm. was provided you had given consent to Google or Apple, they would be using your location data to make certain inferences generally around advertising preferences and what they believe a demographic is, uh, which is going to be in a way, um, you know, perhaps subtle, perhaps in a, meaning, in a meaningful way, different to what we have now, which is 
not based on your location, but based on your proximity to others. So GPS is as brilliant as it is when you're driving, isn't the most accurate technology in the world, certainly not indoors. Um, it might be accurate within, I don't know, like five, 10 meters. And we're really trying to deal with the two meter thing here and the length of time that you've been within two meters of someone. Mm. So it is a slightly different data set that they're collecting now, but in the sense that like corporations have had access to our location data for a long time, it's, it's odd that we had a far greater concern about kind of our government, but broadly the NHS having access mm. to that data. And we seem to be a, a country that likes our national health service compared to big corporates having that for years and using it for something so much less valuable, using it so that they can tell me that I need to buy, I don't know, um, like a, a 15th book, which I'm absolutely not going to read for the next six months. Um, or it, yeah, I, I would, I would much rather it was being used for our, yeah, my safety and the safety of people in general than to sell me yep. something I don't need. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think you hopefully will enjoy the next podcast, which I previously recorded with um, Carissa uh, Veliz, um around her book uh, "Privacy is Power." So she goes, yeah. she's she's extremely um, hateful about the kind of data economy, essentially, and and the use of personal data. So um, check that out when it comes out shortly. Will do. Um, yeah, it's bizarre. I think there's a lot we can talk about there. Um, but just on the book side of things, did you read any good books? I, I, I set up a kind of like a book thing um, this year because I was getting lots of books and ordering lots of books. Um, and hmm. I wanted to then kind of share them in a useful way. Um, I mean, my brief answer is no, it's kind of like becoming the ongoing joke for me. It's like just keep seeing more that I think I would like to read. But the like brutal truth is what I would like to read and what I need to read very different things at the moment so i'm uh, coming to the final year of uh, an undergraduate degree uh or i'm in the final year of and that just needs to be all of my time at the moment so uh yeah it's it's not as if i dislike the reading i would just sometimes yeah. like to read things which aren't dense core philosophy so it's the likes of uh being in time is currently the bane of my life and uh reading oh, a bit that of uh, that's heidegger um heidegger. martin heidegger which i appreciate people listening there is a lot of historical baggage around Heidegger um, but within philosophy approaching that from the phenomenology piece that he did there kind of got to separate from the person themselves um, then uh, Fear and Trembling as well that one is actually a book I massively rate by uh, Soren Kierkegaard um, he is one of those few philosophers who you read and think you're actually a good author I can read your writing mm. and then you get back into the cants of the world and think you yep. You want to punish us with your writing style. Have you ever read any um, Derrida? Yes. I mean, I, I haven't read that much um, Heidegger, but Derrida is obscure to distraction. And, you know, mm. it's kind of like I'm, you have to read everything three times and I'm not I'm not the best of readers anyway because I'm quite dyslexic. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I feel your pain, definitely. <laughs> How about you? Did you have any more sort of like AI related ones or...? I guess well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I started this idea of the Machine Ethics book, uh, podcast book club, um, which you can find at, this is going to be a long URL, so just a warning, it's uk.bookshop.org forward slash lists forward slash AI dash ethics dash book dash club 
God, I need to make a short link for that. But I've listed some of the books I've uh, purchased or read. So most of these books I've actually read on here. Um, the recent one being Privacy is Power. Hmm. And yeah, I've tried to get through quite a few books because of people coming on the podcast, right? Hmm. Um, so that's been a real kind of motivator. This person's coming on in three weeks. I've got to read this book. And um, I've I've been able to do okay a job. So Privacy is Power is really good. Um, I read, I'm reading Automating Utopia still by John Danaher. I've started reading both David Gunkel's books, uh, Machine Question, The Machine Question and Robot Rights. Um, and he's got a new book, which is Robot Rights 2. Point, oh, no, that's, uh, oh, no, that's a different author. Sorry. Robot Rights 2.0, I think, is a different author. And what else did I get through? Oh, yeah. AI Ethics um, by uh, Kockelberg, Mark I think it's pronounced um, and that's I would recommend that just as a kind of a really good primer um, it's mm. quite a small book um, in in literal size <laughs> not in pages it's just small pages um, but it's a really good primer on kind of like here are all the issues not necessarily here are all the solutions so yeah. I would definitely check that out just remind me of um, one I look into actually yeah uh, Ivana Bartoletti's book released uh, earlier on this year um, an artificial revolution on power politics and AI. Um, mm. Sort of on that, uh, I mean, it, it, it takes a more sort of broad approach as well, looking at the political aspects or politicization of AI. But Ivana's got mm. a really good background in the privacy side of things as well. Awesome. I'll, ch- I'll check that one out. Um, yeah, so check out um, some of those books on there. And um, I think if you buy them from there, you're supporting bookshops as well. So. Um, stop buying from large corporations that we, we yeah we, we can even out our <laughs> like the critique yeah, we're giving from Google, Google bashing um, yeah. yeah exactly uh, that's good um, so we also had um, I feel like an explosion it feels for me like an explosion mm. of AI ethics interest anecdotally this came to me in the shape of um, people asking me to write short courses on AI ethics um, and also, you know, other people in universities starting to put this into their curriculums. And one of those that you can actually get on, look at right now is the Ethics of AI um, from the University of Helsinki, um, which I haven't actually gone through the entire thing myself yet. Um, but from the stuff that I have seen so far, it's just quite nice, light, you know, reading. Um, and you can find that ethics-of-ai.mooc, so M-O-O-C dot F-I. Um, and it looks pretty as well, so that's always good. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, better than that as well, it's free to access. Yes, it's free. We like free. Um, and if you want to learn about AI generally, you can go to Elements of AI, which is, I think, Finnish. Oh, I'm going to get... I'm pretty sure Helsinki's in Finland. It's definitely University of Helsinki is the Elements of AI one. And sorry, I might okay. have been getting the Ethics of AI one wrong. It's Elements of AI is free for sure. I think the Ethics one is too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Helsinki um, is Elements in of AI Finland. is also free. And yeah. supposedly you get some sort of certification at yeah. the end of it. But it's, um, it's aimed at all sorts of levels. Um, and just to get anyone up to speed with... Hmm. What is this thing, AI? What is everyone talking about? Um, so definitely go check that out as well. Yeah. Um, but did you see this explosion of interest 
you know, there's all these panel discussions, courses and things appearing about with this title of ethics and AI or ethics of AI or AI ethics. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's been this year, though. I feel like this is something which has been bubbling up for several years now. It's just been sort of like a sustained um, period of, yeah, sort of being a constant at conferences. Um, yeah. I think you're right in the the education in it is improving and access to it as well. There's been a few in the UK, like universities, some having sort of like compulsory modules which will go alongside computer science courses. But uh, I think there was uh, University of Oxford as well has done something specific. Um, so they've got the Centre for AI Ethics, uh, Centre for Ethics in AI. And they appointed their first mm. director uh, for that this year. Um, it's not totally new to them or other universities as well. You've got things like the Oxford Internet Institute, which is uh, looking at, I suppose, the social science behind technology more broadly, but has certainly been a, a big place that's covered ethics in AI for a good few years now. But it's it's becoming bigger. Even where I study, um, uh, which is, yeah, I study sort of a philosophy core degree, Um we have a module which is ethics in technology, which overlaps with um, the Bristol Robotics Lab. Um, so you have some students who have been doing computer science, some students who have been doing pure philosophy. Uh, they they come together and argue with each other about whose approach is best. And uh, even we've got one which is slightly further out as well. Like I think the ethics in technology one is the slightly more sort of grounded, closer to what we're doing today. Where you've got to really pair it up to something which the the robotics side of people are able to build and test um but we we've got a module on post-humanism where we are we've looked at you know things like derrida um mm-hmm. and and it sort of looks more at what are the core foundational philosophical principles which might be applicable to like technology now but if you're looking further out if it's applied to sort of generalist intelligence as much as it's always sort of been my perspective of at least for me I prefer to focus on the things which are closer to hand because I think we have live things to practice on. We have lessons to learn, which can be applied to the future. It's so much more difficult to find a viable working solution to a technology, which we do not have today. We don't know when it's going to be developed. Um, But yeah, certainly I've seen a lot of it in education. Mm, That's really, I mean, I think that's really positive for sure, because especially people who aren't doing philosophy degrees, you know, for them to get touch points with some of the, things that they're making and how it impacts people you know that's hugely important um and hopefully you know in the next 10 years we'll see the fruit of this you know coming through to your large corporations or startups and such yeah um do you think in the the private sector have you seen many companies doing a really good job at this this year um or signaling yeah. really good things. I mean, obviously, we've already talked about some of the things that Google has done, yeah. which were possibly good and bad. Um, is there any companies that you think are doing a really good job in this area? Sure. Um, I won't. I won't just say the company that I work for because that's like a horribly biased answer. But I think the better way I can answer it is <laughs> by talking about uh, some of the the businesses that we've worked with. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't a good answer at first because I think you said private sector and I'm going to answer with a public sector one but uh, we had a project this year with Harrow Council which I think sort of borders on yeah they're public sector but it's not 
central government is not about policy making. They are, uh, you know, they're a local government who have a budget and they have services to deliver. They need to deliver mm -hmm. them, yeah, to an appropriate standard. Um, and what they were looking at was, you know, following as as is the case, as we expect, you know, the government needs local councils to reach certain sort of like budgetary cuts year on year. Uh, hopefully, one day we'll live in a world where they can increase these budgets so that we can have you know, more more funding for public services. Yeah. But in this instance, they need to find out how they can make their service more efficient and still be able to provide those baseline services. And a big part of that was um, how could they use residents' data to be able to personalize their website. So um, there are some concerns that you can have in there around if if they're yeah there's a very personal data set that they're collecting particularly when you think about the types of services people might be um, accessing with a local council. It could be something like adult or child social services. Could you use this data to make very, uh, you know, very dangerous inferences about people? Could you use it to influence their behaviour and effectively herd? That's not by any means what the council's intention was. It, I think it says a big thing that they employed us to work with them to understand the sort of ethical boundaries of the data that they were collecting. So they wanted to establish um, what data is and is not right for us to collect from our residents. Um, how do we communicate back to our residents in a transparent way? What we're using that data for? How their yeah how the data they've given us has influenced the decisions we've made or you know, what sort of services we're recommending to them? How long do we store that data for? When does it get deleted? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, really kind of like using these things to decide what their data strategy is, what their privacy policy is, how they will personalize services, well, where they will delete data. Um, are any of the decisions they're making biased or is it operating fairly for different people? And carrying all of this out at a time where it's really difficult to engage with residents as well. Um, you know, we, we couldn't do the, yeah. the ordinary thing of going out and interviewing people to find out what they struggled with, what worked and what didn't work. We had to do all of this online and you know, kind of understanding that we're not going to have a perfect set of data to to make these decisions on because we're, we're suggesting using more digital services, but for the opinions that we really want to capture are the people that are finding it most difficult to data access digital things. And our only real option is to, at least in the first point of contact, reach them online. We could also, I suppose, send out letters and ask for phone calls. Um, but how do we do that and still make sure that we're, we're being safe, we're not losing people along this process? Because it is essential services that we're dealing with. Uh, and you solved it, right? <laughs> solved. <laughs> um, I think there are, there are certainly things we found out which we can take mm. action on to, to make improvements. There were some really positive things out of it, actually, when we were going through. So we, we ran a survey with, with residents that we called uh, yeah, Trust and Transparency Survey, where we were asking people um, what data they believed the council currently collected on their website, what inferences they thought were made from that data, uh, what data they thought the council was planning to use in the future. Um, and from that, we could sort of understand like, how well are your privacy policies working? Because if people think you're collecting you know, ABC data sets and you're actually collecting DEF, then there's this, yeah. this big gulf of kind of an asymmetry of knowledge in um, your residents and your council. Um, there was an asymmetry of knowledge. People did not you know, very well understand what data was being collected, but it was actually in the opposite direction. People thought the council was using 
a lot more data than they were using and weren't comfortable with the data that they believed was being collected. So it was things like, uh, do you believe the council is using your social media uh, profile to influence the kind of personalization on the website? There was a proportion of people who believed that was true. The council did not mm. do that, nor do they ever intend to do it. Uh, they didn't intend to use any data which is prior to you visiting the council website. It was rather once you've landed on the council website, what's the process that you take through there? Um, if you're logged in, what services have you accessed? There can be really clear signals like if you have um, recently submitted a flight tipping incident, you probably want to see some information on that being updated. If you weren't the person that submitted mm -hmm. it, probably don't. Um, so there were some positive things in that. I think um, one of the things which we are sort of uh, currently working on solving as well is how can we make terms and conditions as clear as possible? So like uh, as readable as they can be and as yeah. viable for people to access and um, digest. It's, it's a sort of like difficult process of, we know it still needs to be written in legal language and that, that sort of like necessitates a certain length of detail and wording which not everyone's going to appreciate. That doesn't mean you can't take additional actions as well to perhaps summarize or present in different ways. Um, yeah, I think there's a kind of a point there that the whole industry almost needs to still, I mean, this is a journey that we've been on for a couple of years, trying to make sense of terms and conditions, trying to make sense of communicating um, what is and isn't apparent about a service to public or you know stakeholders whoever it is um so that when you get that pop-up like you know yeah. accept this thing and it's like well i don't really know what i'm accepting here or you know i don't have time to read 20 pages of, of text i mean it just seems ridiculous yeah and we we wouldn't be able to actually kind of function if we were spending all our time um you know both reading and also just uh being actually having the knowledge and and, and language skills to actually read it in a because it's all kind of like legal language as well. It's so a good one, it's actually. a difficult one. I think we're still trying to get to grips with. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to see a blanket solution there. That would be yeah. awesome. There is actually one I, I can think of, which is um, private sector. Uh, though it might not be a 2020 example, I feel as though this might come out before. Um, but if you did a bit of Googling around, there's um, uh, an example of the co-op bank uh, working with a company called CX Partners. Again, uh, all you know, full disclosure, CX Partners is a subsidiary of SOPRA where I work. Um, but uh, they, they ran a project uh, which was how can we make your uh, small print into effectively large print? So it was taking all of these things about um, certain loan products, you know, think credit cards, uh, that type, uh, to say if there's anything which may not be in your interest, we're going to put it right at the top. Uh, we've kind of big red crosses next to it saying the interest mm. rate could be X. If you do this, then X may happen. Then next to it, all the very obvious good things in ticks as well, but it was making yeah, really, really clear right at the top, everything which would traditionally be hidden in you know, 50, 100 pages of terms and conditions, everything yep. which might not be in your interest. Turns out that they actually had quite a significant increase in people taking out loans uh, based on that. And we would hope as well, those people who are taking out the loans, they're also better educated. So making better financial choices, not ending uh, yeah. Yeah, ending up in a worse financial situation as a result. Yeah. 
it's good for everyone in that situation um yeah you know less liability essentially as well with that process hopefully yeah um do you think i mean i've been grappling with this question a lot recently so do you think there's a situation where that is the same for some sort of this is a kind of tangent but like explainability hmm. situation with uh, machine learning models so you might have a way to surface yeah um it's been trained it's been trained on this data set it's been it trained two weeks ago it gets updated constantly um the input is this data the yeah. output is is this we check it daily you know all this sort of information which actually might be relevant to a system or communicating something about a system to create trust create more um trust but also if something happens then you have some sort of like way to understand why that might have happened um and maybe even some legal kind of basis for you know looking yeah. at that information especially if it's a, a proprietary thing as well yeah i suppose there are some methods that one one thing might be that there there was that stat floating around a little while ago uh saying how high a proportion of the companies which claim to be like an AI business or, you know, mm. you know, we use AI for X that didn't actually use anything that we would traditionally consider AI. If we imagine that those companies are in fact using something which is closer to a decision tree type system, those are pretty explainable as to why it's made the choice. There are some technical methods if you're using a more complicated type of model. Uh, the two I'm most aware of is Lime and Shap. Um, I think line. What does it stand for? Locally, ex L I locally interpretable model explainability. I think I might be making that up. It's <laughs> yeah, a system for taking like a, a more obscure model and understanding better. I guess what input variables led to the output that you received. Um, yep. But in some frameworks, I yeah, I, I suppose we could sort of like different expectations of what we mean when we say explainable uh, one which i found quite interesting is it's in admittedly quite a niche area but the fca so like the financial regulator in the uk uh, has a framework called treating customers fairly it's generally abbreviated to tcf um but tcf is designed around six different outcomes um so i can't remember precisely what they are but it's saying things like you know that your your customers uh, are able to trust that they are they're dealing with a business where the fair treatment of customers is central to their corporate culture um the six the six outcomes aren't in themselves telling you that you need to be able to do anything specifically the outcomes mm -hmm. themselves are normative but sort of like the way that you reach that outcome is up to you so um yeah say that there is one around you know non-biased decision making i don't think there is one which specifically addresses that other than the fair treatment of customers necessitates that you are unbiased. Um, yeah. Do you do you achieve this by explaining what the weighting of your model is? Do you explain it by saying what was your input data set? They're not saying that you need to do it in any of those particular ways. They're saying that the outcome needs to be this. That yeah. I think the phrasing is something like uh, customers can trust that they are dealing with a company where... Um, it's not it's not measuring that customers do trust because if you're measuring that customers can trust what you're doing despite the fact that you're not doing it if they are able to trust you there needs to be a real grounding behind it um 
so I suppose that's financial services specific, but I don't think there are ever really like easy answers to this. Um, this is sort of like drifting back to the earlier sort of point as well, but it might be a slightly unpopular opinion, but I don't always think that being transparent actually results in better trust. I think regardless of whether or not transparency results in better trust, we should continue to do it because allowing people to make um, reasonable choices based on honest data is, I think, something we, we would value. But the trust aspect, we've seen things like, here's, I suppose, one instance where we're, we're not Google bashing, but there was the story of um, DeepMind with the acute kidney disease uh, algorithm. And um, I'm slightly rusty on remembering the exact details of this, but um, DeepMind, owned by Google, trains an algorithm which is able to spot acute kidney disease, I believe, like prior to when you would get a normal diagnosis from a hospital, uh, with a reasonably high degree of accuracy, enough to be something we would consider useful. Um, the algorithm is biased. The algorithm is biased to be more performant in spotting the disease in men. The reason for that is because they trained it on a data set from the American Veteran Association male soldiers predominantly. Um, and the media response to this was broadly Google trains biased algorithm. The reality is that Google, yes, they trained it on a biased data set, but they were very aware of that. And the reason why the media knew of this bias is that when they published, they said that we have trained it using this data set, its performances, X in men and Y in women. Um, if we were to release this in full, we would train using a different data set, which is representative of that society so that we can yeah. even out that so that we can have an equal level of performance, male, female only being one. Of course, there are other protected characteristics that we want to you know, be equally performant against as well. But in that instance, I think they were being transparent. I think they were being quite fair to that to say, this is what we have today. This isn't the final version. Mm -hmm. Data was biased. Model is biased. Yeah. Um, and should we release it in full, this is what we'll do, this is how we'll correct it. The media response could have been more so Google trains this, this is how promising it looks based on this. We're aware that there are issues that this will be worked on for a full release. That's that's not what we got. So yeah, we want honesty, but sometimes yeah. we don't build trust through the honesty. I, I suppose that's a reasonable expectation. You, you can be as transparent as you like if you're an extremely untrustworthy person. And we wouldn't mm -hmm. expect to build trust in that. What you you yeah. both need to be trustworthy and honest, and then you. I guess you yeah. you build that trust on experience. So if you're a person who has yeah done bad things, then you know you're not going to trust them to do good things. Essentially, yeah. is, is the, the problem there. So yeah, I think it does seem unfair that the media maybe had influence from other things that Google was doing and not took it as kind of fa at face value, you know, because hmm. um, it does obviously help, you know, that model being there does help better than not being there at all, essentially, which is an interesting um, um, yeah. point. But yeah. of course, the perfect yeah, I mean, situation, do, yeah, your first, yeah, yeah. do the first, the first version of training on a representative data set, you wouldn't end up in this situation. But as a proof True, of concept, but maybe that data set is not available yet, and you yeah. actually have to, you know, spend ten years building that data set 
so you it's kind of like do we make early wins now or do we mm. but obviously i don't know the ins and outs of whether what data sets are available in that area but you can imagine that if you know if this data set exists already and this one that we actually want doesn't exist yet yeah. then we we have somewhere we have a basis to start and then you know yeah. obviously make it transparent that that's the case not just um, not think about it not tell anyone <laughs> you know yeah. put it to production cross our fingers that's obviously not what you want to do uh, in my opinion obviously yeah that's really interesting um it's just all google today isn't it just <laughs> ridiculous we'll find something um, else so to, to, to continue this thread yeah. um what else have Google, this is a, a pop quiz, uh, hmm. Ben, what else have Google done, which is actually good this year? Oh, I feel like you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure I'll give you a clue. Not... It has to yeah. do with folding things. Oh, yeah, alpha and... fold, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the protein folding algorithm, which is yes, like a, a massive breakthrough. That's something which we have been incapable of doing in any sort of efficient means for a very long time. Yep. Well, forever, so, forever. So it's it's been a bit like um, you know, it's it's good for all sorts of different things, which is mm. one of those big things. And I had to look into this a little bit more because I didn't really know much about um, protein folding, right? Um, and proteins can be in lots of different um, configurations. Um, the molecules can be in different configurations to make a protein, and then they fold into a, a three dimensional shape hmm. right and that shape and the protein um kind of combine to then define what it's capable of doing as a drug or as um you know kind of gene therapy like it can be used in lots of different ways because uh, proteins exist in all sorts of different places in our body in biology um i hope i'm getting this like sort of correct and any biologist is kind of like, cringing yeah. right now believe me i can't <laughs> correct you on any of this i would okay <laughs> um, but the, the best <laughs> the best we've been able to do is quite a hard one um process of like trying things out seeing what happens experimentation and these things can have thousands upon you know hundreds of thousands of permutations of how these things can be put together but then how they actually then produce a shape and, and fold um so having some sort of simulated way of doing this um without it taking ages is a real breakthrough and it mm. means that we can start simulating the kinds of things the kinds of outputs that we want to see and then produce proteins test them out specifically and then go this worked or it didn't work and then and, then, and this is how new drugs and new um, biological things can be created in a faster way which obviously impacts us to do with all sorts of things this year especially with covid um it was really nice to see that there's there was something happening there and that was you know deep mind with um i'm not sure exactly how it works i don't think they've published it yet or they haven't that i've seen um and some sort of machine learning technique to do that yeah yeah Good. not a google one but there was another okay, big challenge people have been trying to figure out um, yeah, in an efficient means as well. Uh, I might be getting this horrifically wrong, but um, around the three body problem. So, in in astronomy, it's it's generally fairly easy for us to uh, figure out what the stable orbits are of two bodies. But when you add a third or more into the mix, it becomes much more chaotic to simulate yeah, those sort of stable orbits. Um, and this was a university. Um, I can't remember which one precisely, but they, they sort of generated an algorithm which was much more efficient at figuring out how these sort of like 
uh, objects of more than two will find staple orbits with each other. Mm. Yeah, and it's really quite hard to understand unless you actually visualize it. So mm. you you can visualize two things both moving around each other, like the sun and the earth mm. going around each other, whatever. Um, or you have two comets and they interact and they start spinning and creating some sort of stable orbit, even if they're traveling forward still. Um, whereas if you put a third object, another comet, into that mix, the question is, you know, do they is a stable orbit possible with their trajectories or is it they're going to spin off at some point into space yeah. in all different directions and the gravitational uh, pull won't pull them back together? And it's like a non-obvious, um, there's a non-obvious solution there that we don't necessarily have, which feels like it should be obvious to me. You know, <laughs> it's interesting that, that this is actually a real big problem. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's a really uh, cool thing to be looking at. And for me, it's all about visualizing in your brain and trying to work it out. Yeah. But we're getting closer to, to a more generalized solution there, I think, which is nice. Um, so... Uh, from the astronomical to um, the kind of next calendar year, let's, um, are we going to theorise um, what might happen in 2021, Ben? We're going to take that yeah. jump. Uh, what do you think? What, we, what are we going to see in AI and AI ethics in 2021? Yeah, I suppose, um, I mean, maybe basing it on some of the things that we've seen happening over the past year, which I think are going to be trends that continue. Um I think we've seen this this pattern around um, kind of like AI nationalism. I think that was the term that was used in the State of AI report. But there's, over the last year, increasingly been these sort of indications of uh, governments taking control of AI, predominantly through things like uh, foreign direct investment. So we had, uh, just a couple of months back, there was the um, National Security and Investment Bill in the UK, which allows the UK to sort of like scrutinise um, certain foreign direct investment in UK industries, which does specifically call out sectors like artificial intelligence, robotics, computing, quantum. That's happened as well in Germany a little bit earlier in the year. I think it was around June, July. Uh, they had uh, sort of approved a, a similar law, which is looking at foreign direct investment. And the European Union as a whole has proposed a framework around this as well. So I think we'll see that continue. It's, it's, I guess, being seen as something which is both like a commercial edge for uh, for countries and also as in the same sense that we, we like to believe we have energy security and we have food security. You know, if things, um, if it's impossible to import the food supply that we do, that we'll still be able to get through. And that's, that's never been, I suppose, more obvious than it is at the moment in the UK. Um, with our, you know, our borders being closed down effectively because of this new strain of COVID, we've really had to ask ourselves, and I'm you know, not saying this because I want to encourage anyone to go out and stockpile and make it so that it's impossible for people who really need food to get it from the shops. Um, but it, it, you know, there have been questions around this of how much of our food supply comes from overseas, how easy are we going to find it to import this or produce it ourselves if that's not possible anymore. And government's thinking, I think, how much control do we want over our own destiny and the type of AI that we're developing, the companies that are in control of that, or the government, um, the government influence there might be on that as well. I think we'll see that continue. Um, I hope we'll see some of those positive things we've described continue into 2021 as well. Um, yeah, I do suspect that that, um, 
MOOCs, you know, online courses are going to continue to be the norm for quite a while now. And I, I would hope at least, um, even as we do get back to a, a place where things are able to be more normal and there can be in-person teaching, um, as schools, you know, schools are open in the UK, but universities are broadly closed for lectures. Um, I think it would make sense that we continue to have a more hybrid approach where people who still need to shield or people who for whatever reason can access them remotely. Um, yeah, I, I think and I hope that there will be more of that education. It can be on, yeah, on any topic really. I think uh, having greater access to education of any description is a good thing, but that can be in AI, that can be in ethics as well. If we can make it cheaper, if we can make it free, there is obviously going to be a huge boundary when you're talking about about £10,000 a year for an undergrad and postgrads. Mm. Mm. That and the rest. Uh, it could be so much <laughs> more we're going to get into a yeah. general kind of chat about all the things that we could change about the, <laughs> <laughs> the public system, right? Yeah. Um, how much we pay for tax, um, all yeah. these different things. Um, and also for corporations to pay more taxes and yeah. uh, there's lots of little things and lots of really yeah. big things that we should change in 2020. I, I think we'll see, we'll see a lot of things continue. I think like deep mind releasing it's um, like figures for this year. Uh, once again, has been an enormous cost to Google. Um, I think that type of thing is going to continue and I don't see it as being a, bad thing necessarily. I think if you're a, a big corporate like that, um, you don't need to be making profits off every single individual part of your business. But seeing mm -hmm. this as being a long-term investment and valuable is good. Um, but it, it may continue that way, I think, for a while that these big sort of moonshot AI projects may cost a lot of money and may not give us immediate returns right now. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a really good point. I think what I've seen is there's been a lot of chat away from like I said previously, that AI can solve everything and that, that maybe we have the tools that will, we when applied in a sensible way, will solve it. And I think people are waking up to the fact that maybe there are more tools that we can get mm. um, that have abilities in different directions and that we, you know, we've got more work to do and we've got more work to do um, to make sense out of what is... Um, going to be ethically okay you know in what instances should we use these tools at all um as well as you know developing new ones so i'm really looking forward to kind of new breakthroughs i guess in um in ai and and hopefully the kind of broadening people's imagination a little mm. bit not everything is a neural network for example um and that maybe we can we can look at other ways of doing things um and, and new things that we can create, you know. Um, I'm, I've always been fascinated by genetic algorithms and how they um, evolve and, and produce things. Um, and it might be there's something else like that or that applied to other things that can really help us out in different novel ways, you know. Um, so I'm looking forward to kind of more things like that and especially looking at how the, um, the, the Google... The protein folding, you know, how did that actually play out? Um, how did they make that happen? So that's going to be interesting. And yeah, I think, yeah, just um, more awareness of the issues, I guess, in 2021. And hopefully less rhetorical principle making and <laughs> more yeah. application of, of, of these sort of um, overarching ideas. Um, in a similar way, you were talking about the, the, the financial 
industry gets these kind of principles they need to implement. We need to fully implement things and make it transparent to people that they are implemented to create that trust. Although that's how I feel about it. I think some companies are doing um, a better job than others. So, Yeah, I suppose we're seeing parts of that. I've, I've definitely seen this pattern of protecting certain like um, sensitive um, groupings of people. There's been, over the past year, I think two notable things which have been released. There's in the, in the UK, we have the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, um, who have released the age-appropriate design code I think more colloquial, colloquially known as the children's code. Um, but, you know, um, rules, guidance on how we should protect children online. And UNICEF had uh, a, a kind of policy guidance document, I think in draft form at the moment, on AI for children. So we're seeing protection in those specific areas. Um, the UK government as well, they, they recently had their uh, the National Data Strategy published that included in it as well um or sort of like related to it they refreshed a data ethics framework but in the national data strategy gave the cabinet office the remit to promote uptake of this across the public sector so positive indications i think it's it's really too early yet for us to say how well that data ethics framework is being used in the uk's public sector but next year i think we'll get a much better idea and perhaps we'll get you know as you say just a lot more transparency on why certain procurement decisions or implementation choices have been made. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Um, well, it's going to be really interesting and hopefully we can do a bit of work ourselves and, and push in the right direction. So it's positive too. I hope so. Um, great. Do you have any other thoughts before we call it? Uh, I don't think so. Do you? Um, I just want to wish you, Ben, and everyone here that's listening, a fantastic end of this year, uh, 2020, and let's kind of do our best to move forward and create a better world in 2021 um, in various different directions, all the things that we talked about today. And um, I'm just really excited to still be here and it <laughs> sounds um, bad, but like to, to be doing this work and, and to um, be sharing it with, with people who happen to be listening. So thank you. And um, if you want to keep supporting us in 2021 with these types of conversations, um, then please um, share the podcast, um, tell your friends, rate it on all the different places. Um, Pestum, myself, Ben Byford and Ben Gilbert uh, for all these sorts of issues and interesting quandaries. Um, and that is um, me. So you can find me at All The Machine Ethics Stuff and uh, Ben Byford on Twitter. And you can find Ben at... Uh, the website which I've not yet created which I've been telling myself to do for the last year or two uh, or otherwise uh, Twitter's generally a good one for me uh, it's at real Ben Gilbert um, spelt G-I-L-B-U-R-T I should say I found it quite funny when I discovered there there is a real at Ben Gilbert an at real Ben Gilbert with an E-R-T on the end he is an imposter he does happen to have several times more followers than me so we have to do something about that um that's the most obvious place, I'd say. Um, and as as Ben has said already, yeah, hope you hope you do uh, manage to make the most of this sort of like festive period as well. Critically, stay safe, um, and we hope to hear from you in 2021. And really hope that it's going to be a better year for us all. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Bye.